You're listening to Once, episode 188, Poor Unfortunate Soul. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. And I'm Hunter Hathaway. We're here in San Diego right now. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking at Social Media Marketing World 2015, and it worked out really well to be near Hunter at this time, that we could watch the episode together, record this podcast together. So that's why it's not Jeremy and Aaron normally joining us. But Hunter, it's great to meet you in person. I know. We've been talking for years. Yeah. So we have dug into the details here of Poor Unfortunate Soul, and we've got your feedback. We've got some great things to draw from this. So let's get into this by talking about the past. The first thing, since I like to talk about the timeline, is from what I can tell, this timeline is probably 50 to 100 years after Hook initially had the run-in with Rumpelstiltskin. Because even... It was Poseidon said, you spent a lifetime trying to get revenge. Yeah, so it has to be at least 50 years. Right. So Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, something like that, 50, 60, 75, 100 even. Yeah. What do you think overall of this episode? The more times I watch it, the more I like it. Really? Yeah. I mean, I love, if, if you haven't seen it already, it's all about Ursula, and it's got a lot to do with the Little Mermaid storyline that intertwines in it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I I like how they take their standard Once Upon a Time twist with this episode. And now Ursula is not the real Ursula. Well, she is the real Ursula, but not like the the sea goddess Ursula. exactly. And Ursula is very aerial in this episode. Yes, and I like how they take some of the aspects of the movie and intertwine it into the Ursula storyline. Right. Yeah. The Disney movie you're saying. Yes. The Disney movie. Yeah. Like the, with the music and the title, even poor unfortunate soul coming from the Disney movie. The shell. Yeah. The shell taking away the voice in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of things. No wedding going on at the time. No seagulls. <laughs> no, like that. no talking seagulls. And then they or even flower. threw in Ariel for us. Yes. I think in some ways, I know like Jacqueline had commented that maybe they threw Ariel in just because they thought, well, we can't do a movie that's very little, or we can't do an episode that's very Little Mermaid-esque without actually including the Little Mermaid. And it's nice to see her again. Yeah. As small a part as she played, and in some ways kind of odd of a part to play. Yeah. But let's get into this, starting with the past. While Herc is working for Peter Pan, that was something I really liked getting to see because it ties in with previous stuff. And I did realize after rewatching this episode that this episode has some tie-in with every major season's story arc. And this yes. is the tie-in with the first half of season three, talking about Pan. And it seems like right now what they're doing for Pan is that they are just trying to gather sweets for him. Yeah, that's really strange. But he is a kid, yeah. technically, and they've got the Lost Boys, so they're going to need a lot of candy and sugar cakes and all kinds of things whatever they're doing right now i wonder if that's all that hook had to do for pan is just bring food back and forth but the pirates stopped their work only when ursula stopped singing 
And her singing is just so hypnotic in this. Yeah, it reminds me like of a siren. Yeah. Like her voice, like the sirens in some of the mythological storylines, when they sing, it like traps them and they all consume to her. So it's kind of like that storyline. And that is very true to many interpretations of mermaids, where mermaids and sirens are very closely related. Mm -hmm. Some would say they're kind of the same, depending on which mythology that you're looking at. So it does fit in nicely there. And I like how they do that with Once Upon a Time, tying in a lot of mythology. Even later on, it's funny to watch. The more times I rewatch an Mm -hmm. episode, I look at some of the side characters often. And in the tavern later on, when Ursula was singing, there's a guy who just seems like, oh, oh, she's done. She's done. And just like wakes up from this trance and then they all applaud. Yeah. It really surprised me how fast, um, when she was done singing, that hook got out of the trance compared mm. to everyone else on the ship. It does seem like after that first encounter with her, that he's almost immune to her singing from that point on. Or he's learned to like block it out. Right. I do wonder, and this isn't a backstory that we're probably actually going to get to, but what did happen to Ursula's mother? Poseidon said that a pirate killed her. Yeah, how did he kill her? Why did he kill her? Yeah, backstory we'll probably never get, especially since, do you think Ursula's done now with this season? I don't know. I mean, I know guest stars for the upcoming episode, so I can't can't talk about that. I'm not going to say yes or no if she's there or not, but I do not know. That's the difficult thing with having you on the podcast right now, because (laughs) you know the spoilers, and Hunter and Jacqueline will be sharing spoilers later on in the podcast. But because of that, there are going to be things where Hunter is just going to have to say, I don't know, or no comment, and I'm going to be left here theorizing on my own, just to keep it spoiler-free. Because yes. of our spoiler policy. But we did get to meet Poseidon. Yeah? What do you think of him? All I could think of was Ghostbusters. <laughs> I'm sorry. For those of you who don't know, he was in the movie Ghostbusters. And every time I saw him on the screen, I just thought of that. I don't know why. The whole Poseidon thing and Ariel and a lot of this, I felt like was pretty forced in this episode. Or overly convenient or in a way, just filling time. And I'll get to a couple more of those in a little bit. When young Ursula was in the tavern, we learned that Poseidon has his own vault of magical objects too. I guess that's the thing that everyone that has magical powers likes to do. Well, they need to keep them away from those that can't use magic or are going to abuse magic. Yeah. And Glower Haven is some land... I would think other than the Enchanted Forest, because this tavern, it could be just a reused prop, but we've seen this tavern before. They've used it for other things, like the hunter was in this tavern, the huntsman, that is, was in this tavern, and uh, we've seen the dwarves in this tavern before, too. So it could be like actually geographically supposed to be the same tavern in Enchanted Forest. It could be somewhere else. The dock is very similar to what we've seen before when Emma snuck onto the dock back when Emma and Hook traveled back in time, and that was Enchanted Forest. Yes. So I'm thinking this is happening right now in the the Enchanted Forest, which is Mist Haven, and Glower Haven is some other realm. Or just some other area. Yeah. Another um, kingdom's area. Well, it seemed to be that would be far enough away that 
Ursula would have to take a ship. Like she couldn't just swim there. Or she could swim there if she was still a mermaid, if she wasn't wearing the bracelet. Yeah. But she's not allowed to be under her father's ocean. Oh, yeah. When Poseidon was on the ship with Hook, it reminded me of season one in the way that Poseidon held out that seashell and wove his thing over it and said, now it's enchanted. Yeah, his trident. Yes. (laughs) It reminds me of, it's almost verbatim, part of it is verbatim, to when Charming was with Rumpelstiltskin in the Enchanted Forest, and they had their little sword fight, and then Rumpelstiltskin had the ring, and then he said, now it's enchanted. Yeah. It, it To me, it doesn't really show much, but it just lit up in glue, glowed. And then it's like, okay, here you go. It's special now. But it's very similar to the Disney movie shell in yeah. that it takes her voice, but in the movie it takes her both her talking voice and her singing voice. When she lost her voice, she did seem to sound different, right. like more raspy, not so pure sounding or like like a... A soft voice. That's it. She didn't have a soft voice anymore, which was part of her singing voice, I think. But yeah, like in the movie, she completely has no voice and she has to like mime everything that she needs. Yeah. Squid ink. Yep. Really? I, I know Jeremy is pretty uptight about the squid ink thing. And we've seen in season one that yes, Rumpelstiltskin was paralyzed by something. Right. But didn't they write something with the squid ink? Well, there was uh, when Emma and Snow White were back in the Enchanted Forest. The squid ink was in Rumpelstiltskin's jail cell. He had a little supply there. And it was basically the point is that he could have escaped at any point. Does that mean squid ink did actually paralyze him, though? I don't know. I think they're just writing things in as they need it to happen. <laughs> I think, at least with squid ink and paralyzing people, I think we can say they're being consistent with that. Yes. Because you look at the uh, the times that squid ink was used. Okay, yes, Rumpelstiltskin was in his jail cell, and he could have gotten out at any moment with squid ink, but he was paralyzed by, presumably, squid ink in that quill. And the squid ink worked in season three on Peter Pan, even. Right. And Peter Pan sometimes seems to be even more powerful than Rumpelstiltskin. And yes. the squid ink worked for him, or paralyzing him. So I think, yes, the Dark One could be paralyzed with squid ink. But that's not really taking revenge. It's not. I mean, I think the only way, that in Hook's mind, revenge is... Death, not paralyzing. When we start talking about the Neverland timeline here, I do get a little confused about this. And I know Jacqueline was as well, because we did learn that uh, in a flashback that Rumpelstiltskin learned how to kill the Dark One, and that was with the dagger. Mm -hmm. We don't know at what point he learned to do that. I think we'd have to assume it's after this point uh, the events of this episode, but then why did he work for Pan for so long? I mean, we know he worked for Pan for a very long time because it had to have been a couple hundred years that he was in Neverland. So I just don't know where he learned what. Yeah, and he was in Neverland for a little while, but had never set foot on the land 
when Bay got there. It's trying to dissect that is a bit too much in depth for the moment. (laughs) I thought it was strange that Poseidon called himself both the sea king and a deity. What is the difference between the two of them? (laughs) Well, I think being a king is royalty. You, it implies you can be killed. Someone else can outrank you or, I mean, not outrank you, but uh, supersede you. And, it's passed on through lineage. So his son would eventually be king, presumably at some point, I don't know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, anything like that. And it seemed like he got his power from his trident. Yes. I know in the little mermaid story, King, uh, the King there, he had his power through his trident. So when Ursula overtook him in that movie, she got the trident. Right. What also is confusing is that the original Ursula is called the sea goddess. Yes. And I thought initially, well, that's fine. Okay, she's the sea goddess, and Poseidon here is the sea king. But then he says to Hook on the ship, how dare you attack a deity? Right. But yet this deity only gets his power from his trident. It's a little odd, a little inconsistent, writers. I know Jacqueline also pointed out that if Poseidon is a deity, does that make his daughters also divine? So is Ursula not just a regular mermaid, but is she the daughter of a sea god? And so therefore, when she got the power, she is actually a goddess. Well, we know his wife wasn't a deity yeah, because she died. So maybe Ursula's half and half. Maybe. Now, I know there are different mythologies on whether deities can be killed or whether they're eternal. But it's a good point to bring up. All I noticed is that we never saw them swim. Yeah, we saw Ariel swim. Well, yeah, but but we never saw Ursula swim. She never (laughs) went into the water after she got her tentacles. Yeah. We never saw Poseidon swim. Mm -hmm. He had legs, and I did notice he had the cuff in present-day time, but... We never saw him with a cuff or standing or even with a tail. That was just something that was weird to me because I'm thinking it's got to do with budget. (laughs) Yeah, that could easily be. And yeah, some of the effects on this episode were pretty, pretty cheap. But, you know, speaking of budget, I want to thank some people who helped make this episode of the podcast possible. Your kind donations really support the podcast and keep it running. And for this episode, I want to thank David Newland, Steve Johnson, Lisa Slack, Swan Got Hooked, Tracy Anderson, Daniel Clark, and Marianne Lavati. Thank you very much for your kind donations through our website at oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. And that's where you can donate one time, automatic monthly, or per episode through Patreon. Thank you very much for your kind contributions. We really could not do this podcast without you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you'd like to be a sponsor for an episode or several episodes, please go to oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. And thank you also for voting for us in the podcast awards. The voting is now closed and we have to wait until the middle of April to discover who the winners are. So now is that time of eager anticipation, just waiting to see, and we'll discover. Those will be live on podcastawards.com in mid-April, and you can go there to watch the live stream when it's available. But thank you very much for your support. Let's hope that we take home an award this time. 
Now let's talk about this present day. What's happening in Storybrooke starts out at Rumpel's cabin. And I remember in the initial reactions, I was initially excited about hearing about the dragon. That was our little season two story arc reference. And there was also a season one reference here where Rumpel said it wouldn't be the first time he lied to my face, referring to August, and that actually referring to when August basically pretended to be Bay. Right. Which I kind of hoped for in the beginning. (laughs) August described this stuff about the dragon, researching the author, was interested in the author, had all of this research and stuff. But now rewatching the episode a couple times, I have to think, was any of that true? I don't know. I mean, we never saw any of his research. Regina got his whole saddlebag from the motorcycle. Right. So she got to go through all that. And is the trailer still around? Yeah, the trailer, I would assume the trailer is still around. Why wouldn't they have looked there earlier? Right. Well, I think Mr. Gold knows that August is a liar. That's why he didn't even check the trailer. But August seemed a little bit disappointed when Gold said that. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, was there maybe a trap there? Or was there maybe actually something in the trailer? I don't know. I would probably think that there was something in the trailer because August didn't know that he was going to be turned back into a boy when he was. Right. So I don't think he would have had time to set up a trap. And he says... He even said, um, made a comment in the episode about how he remembers being the boy, even though the boy doesn't remember being him. So, like, it's not like the the boy could go and put a trap at the trailer because he didn't know about it. True. And also, as Jacqueline pointed out in a note to us, what August described isn't actually what happened in the episode Selfless, Brave, and True when we met the dragon. Right. August was going because he wanted to be healed. So is it maybe that just August is pulling this thing off his head and lying? So as cool as it was to receive a reference to the dragon, it's hard to tell when a liar tells you something. You can't always assume they're always going to lie, but yet you can never know when they're telling the truth. Yes, and that is always a hard thing. I want to think he was telling the truth because that'd give more validity to that whole dragon character. Which was such a cool character. Or could have been a cool (laughs) character. But did you notice how Regina was protecting him the entire time? Yeah. Like every time she like started the, she took the knife away and then she started the fireball and like, so she had control over the whole situation. I just liked how it showed that she was still good Mm -hmm. and not reverting into her evil self. It almost seemed like August got her little joke against Cruella yes. earlier because it looked like he was trying not to smile at what she said about Cruella. But then it became obvious to August that knew no, it doesn't look like Regina's here to help in any way. I think he was confused. I don't think he knew that she was trying to protect him. But like us watching the scene, we could see that she's really trying to be good and protect him, but still keep her cover as being evil. And she basically knows what his hot buttons are or how to really make him talk and scare him into talking. But he did still lie to her after, you know, she inspired him. I loved how they made Snow do the talking for Regina. (laughs) 
<laughs> it just, it looks so crazy to see her mouth moving, but Regina's voice coming through. Yes. That was really cool. And she like kind of took on the pers- personality persona. Yeah. If you watch her body language, you could tell as soon as she was gone and how she like hunched over, it's like, okay, whatever this foreign thing is, is out of me. Yeah. When they went to talk to Belle, <laughs> I know a lot of people were thinking this. What good was the oath, the pirate oath that Belle and Hook took? <laughs> if on the next day she just says, oh yeah, I gave it to Hook. <laughs> well, I think it was, I, I understand because I thought that was hilarious too. But if you look, he was in the scene. So if he had been like giving her a look or something, you would have been like, wait, what? Because she's like, but I gave it to him. Like he was right there asking with them time to get where's the dagger and she's like but i gave it to him but their oath was actually to not even speak of it to each other right but if someone were to come up to you and say but i gave it to you and you'd be like but i don't have it like that's just a normal reaction i thought this was a completely normal reaction to that situation well i would keep the oath (laughs) because i might have to assume that's well that might make me an accomplice to the dark one. So maybe I shouldn't keep the oath. I'll have to wrestle with that decision. <laughs> Man, that pain that Belle is going through here. I know. I feel so sorry for her. She's been deceived now multiple times by Rumpel, and she's realizing all of this. It doesn't give me a lot of hope for she and Rumpel to get back together at all. I mean, already I thought there wasn't much hope because of Belle discovering how much he was already lying to her. Yeah. She like banished him and everything. And like she was using the dagger. And I really felt like that was like the end. And now she's over the top. Like I am completely done with this guy. Right. We are never, ever, 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 ever getting back together. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. When Emma and Huck were talking about the dagger... And Hook said, I should have just killed him with the dagger. It did make me think, oh, what if one of the ways that they're going to turn Emma's heart dark is what if she does become the dark one? What if Rumpel somehow makes her so angry that she does stab him with the dagger? But then that would kill him. Presumably, yes, but... (laughs) Dead isn't dead really anymore on the show. show. Yeah. I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, I've never really thought of anyone actually using the dagger. It's like that thing that's always there and always can be used, but no one's actually going to go that far because that means that them themselves will turn evil. And it could be something kind of like what happened in the middle of season three, where Rumpel killed himself and his father with the dagger. Yep. By doing so, he remained the dark one, but was then resurrected from that tar. Right. So Emma is a magical creature. She's the product of true love. She has white magic, but apparently she has the heart that has the potential for the greatest darkness. So if she were to use the dagger on Rumpel to kill him, maybe it would act differently and the whole conditions would change because it's not a regular person killing the dark one with the dagger like Rumple originally was. I don't know. We need a whole book on rules of magic <laughs> and how they relate to this show. I'll say this for the audience because the audience is thinking it. The writers need a book 
with the rules <laughs> sometimes. I, I would say this isn't really the best, most consistently written episode. It was still a good episode. And like you said, yeah, I, the more I watched it too, and the more I think about this, the more I watched it, the more I liked it. And Jenny enjoyed it as well because she's a fan of the Little Mermaid thing. And Jenny liked how they twisted the storylines and wove things together in different ways. When they showed August the page from the book, for one thing, now all of August's memories are back. Yes. He remembers himself as a boy. He remembers himself as a man. He remembers everything that has happened before this. In Phuket, in leather, with Emma, and all of that. And it also makes me wonder, does August actually know more about the book and the author than he's telling? I think so. What do you think he knows? I'm not sure what he knows. I just know he knows more. Okay. I really do. I think he he's trying to keep it quiet because it might be one of those big secrets like that no one's supposed to know. Like, I don't know an example of a real life thing, but it's like you always speculate things, but you never are supposed to actually know the truth. And I think that's what it is. I think he's holding it in as best as he can because maybe he himself is like an apprentice. He's not the apprentice, but like an apprentice. And he is, well, I mean, he added those pages to the book. So he already knows more about the book than anyone else. Do you think he knows the author? Has ever talked directly to the author? I have no idea. He knows where the author is. How does he know that? And he knew who Balefire was. How did he know that? Probably the author. The typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really don't know how he knows it. I just have a, feel, a gut feeling that he knows more than what he's telling everyone. Right. Did you like the Kong shell that they were using in the movie or in the show? That's how he called Ursula. Yeah, and it reminded me of when Neil called the squid in Neverland. Yes. And Ursula is kind of like squid-like or octopus-like or something like that. I was trying to really hard to listen for it, and it was very, very faint. But she picked up on that right away. She could hear it from, I'm going to guess, miles away or across the forest. Yeah. or Because no one knew where he, they were at that point. When Herc and Ursula then start working together to get the ship, this whole thing of the ship has a lot of problems with it. And I mean, there's a, they introduced a lot of problems with this episode. I think like the fact that Ursula just by tapping the water with her tentacle can open a portal. Well, she is more powerful than even her father now. So she does have the magic capabilities. So it could just be part of her tentacles powers. Yeah, true. But then Ariel can open a portal and she's just a regular mermaid. And it's known apparently that mermaids can travel between worlds. Right. Jacqueline made a really good point about this, that the magic is starting to be lost a little bit in the original story and the original premise of this is a land that no one can travel to because it's a land without magic. Right. And the only way you could get here was with a dark curse. Now we're discovering all of these other ways that people could get here. The sorcerer can open a door. The apprentice can open the door unless Jeremy. But now that magic, but that's magic is now there. So maybe because magic is is now prevalent in Storybrooke, there are other ways of opening up portals and stuff. Because that, we yeah. did not see Ariel open the portal to Storybrooke before the curse was broken. True. 
on all these other ways of people getting to Storybrooke. We did not see that before the curse was broken. Yeah, very true. And even like the rabbit tying this in with Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, the rabbit didn't come to Storybrooke for Will until after the curse was broken. Right. So yeah, that does make it make more sense that this is no longer a land without magic. Right, because that's the only part that does have magic. Magic is not in the whole world or mm -hmm. the whole planet Earth. It's just in Storybrooke. Right, because Rumpel brought it at the end of season one. So that's what makes this world travelable again. That's what I believe. Yeah, that makes sense. It reminds me of a video game I actually played called Borderlands 2. And in it, there's this thing you have to do to bring a city back online and then then you can travel to it from anywhere and that's kind of what it seems like that they did with storybook here is it's online with the magical world all of these worlds like jefferson talked about back in season one all of these worlds are connected with magic and now that our world has magic again it's connected and it's only not you can't travel between it when there's a dark curse of some sort. Remember, Hook had said that travel between the worlds was impossible during the, well, there have been multiple dark curses now, but during (laughs) Pan's dark curse, but when Snow cast her version of the dark curse, travel between the worlds was possible again. And then that's how Hook got back to our world as he found a magic being. So I think all of that to say the portals thing, I think is more consistent when we consider that magic is now in our world. Right. Our world is online, or at least storybook is. Right. Yeah. And what did you think of the ship in the bottle? <laughs> Cute, but really unnecessary, I thought. I thought the scene was funny because, like, she smiled. Like, he's like, oh, it didn't work. And she's like, yes, it did. And then up pops the little ship in the bottle. And I thought that was really cute. But the whole backstory for that was very weird to me. Yeah, you could have easily said that when Ursula brought the ship over, Ariel just so happened to be passing by and it grabbed Ariel too. Yes. But then you'd have to question, well, where is Blackbeard? Where is his crew? Where is everyone else that was on the Jolly Roger at that time? Unless you just say that it was nighttime and they were all off the ship, which that could explain it too. Okay, so with the whole Ariel part, the whole how she got trapped in the bottle and that Blackbeard got some royals angry and Arendelle like that to me, just that whole little part confused me so much. Mm -hmm. Especially since we've never seen Elsa with that kind of power before. Right. We know she can freeze people, Yeah, but I've never seen her shrink anything or put it in a bottle. You could say that there's a scientific explanation for this, that many materials do shrink when frozen. Okay, I will give you that, but I don't think it'll shrink (laughs) that much. I really don't. I mean, we saw in the last half of the season when people would get frozen, they just froze in place and they were still full size. That's because they weren't super frozen like <laughs> Hook's ship was. When they're super frozen is when they crash to the ground into lots and lots of little pieces. I'm trying to give them credit here. It's not working too well. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, having Ariel there, yeah, that's one thing. Makes it convenient. Uh, 
ties her in with the Little Mermaid story and gives us a little bit of an explanation for where or what happened to Blackbeard, sort of. And I think we can assume that Blackbeard is probably just prisoner somewhere. Yes, I think so. And or he's frozen too. Yeah. And Ariel, now that she's helped Hook, she's probably gone back to Prince Eric. Yep. I'm going to guess that as well. So Ariel was miniature for a little while inside that bottle. Yes. But it couldn't have even been that long. No more than six weeks. Yeah, probably. Or it could have been a little bit longer, but yeah, somewhere around there. Regina's dream. What do you think of that? I thought it was very interesting. I really liked seeing Regina all in her evil queen attire again. Yeah. But it was also confusing. The first time I saw it, I'm like, why is she throwing a fireball at both of them? But then the whole protecting him, I don't know. It was confusing me. It was a dream. Let's put it that way. (laughs) But there's something to the dream. And Regina recognizes that. And I don't think it has something to do with Emma necessarily. No, I don't think Emma had anything to do with it. It could be something to do with Marion that Marion is somehow a danger to Will. Now, this could be in multiple reasons. But remember that we've heard different things about from Tinkerbell, how because Regina did not go to Robin at that time when she met or saw Robin in the tavern, because of that, Tinkerbell said, you ruined his life. But it really seemed like he did have a good life. He he had a woman that he loved, loved him. They had a wonderful son cutest boy on once upon a time, probably little Roland. It's not like, Oh, that's torture. This is ruining his life. But I wonder if there's something here where maybe something has happened to Marion and now she has become a threat to Robin. Maybe it's something like a disease. Maybe it's Marion has turned to the dark side and now she's a threat to Robin. And so in this dream, That's what Evil Queen was doing, is trying to get Marion away from Robin. Or it could be something completely different. Maybe Evil Queen was trying to get Regina away from Robin. Protecting Robin, realizing that Regina is a villain and can't have her happy endings. Or maybe this is some way that the author is trying to communicate with Regina. There are many different strange ways you could go with this. Please listen to spoilers after this episode. <laughs> okay. I figured when you weren't saying anything, <laughs> I thought, you know something. Here is a message we received from Jessica Frayne saying that she was thinking about Regina's dream and the symbolism. Jessica said, I think it means something. I have long thought that Regina is afraid of self-sabotaging her own happy ending. Actions have consequences, and for a long time, Regina's evil acts have not led to a path toward a happy ending. Regina seems to be afraid of enjoying her own happy ending in front of her, and she constantly doesn't accept the love in front of her. And in this dream, she does exactly that in that her evil side takes over. I tried to look up dream analysis for this dream, but I don't know what to search for. So I looked up fighting since Regina kind of fought herself to protect Robin. What I got was interesting in that the dream analysis is the following. To see others fighting in your dream suggests that you are unwilling to acknowledge your own problems and turmoil. 
you are not taking any responsibility or initiative in trying to resolve issues in your waking life. To dream that you are trying to fight but cannot throw your arms as hard as you want signifies lack of self-esteem and self-confidence in some area of your waking life. You are unsure of your next move. This dream may also affect your actual state of REM paralysis during the dream state. Thank you, Jessica, for bringing that research here. I don't know about the whole dream research thing and what it signifies and all of that stuff, but in in movies and TV shows, dreams always mean something. Yes, they always mean something. So this, they wouldn't show it to you if it didn't mean something. Yeah, yeah. So this is going to mean something. I think we are going to get the answer to this because this is something. I know you can't comment here, but this is something that they showed us and. They left it as an open door and they made it obvious that it's an open door because of Regina going to talk to Emma. If this was just a bad dream, Regina would have woken up from it and just been like, oh, that was a bad dream. But because Regina is now trying to explore the meaning of the dream tells me they're going to explore this and the dream does have an important meaning. And we'll probably see that in upcoming episodes. And you can listen to the spoilers soon from Hunter and Jacqueline to really find out what it is that Hunter can't say right now. Just jumping ahead just a little to the whole part where she asks Emma to help find Robin. Wouldn't she have given Robin her phone number before they left? <laughs> you would think, but maybe they didn't like, think She's of like, that. I need a way to contact him, a phone number or anything. Well, when you banished him from the land, well, not really banished him, but had him cross the line, the border... Wouldn't you think that you would have given him your phone number saying if you need anything to call me? Yeah, it was kind of an emergency circumstance that they had to cross the line. But he didn't have a phone. Doesn't mean you can't get to a yeah. phone. I mean, when you get settled, here's my number. Call me. Make, tell me you're okay. I know one thing you could be thinking right now is, well, maybe phone calls don't work into Storybrook. But that's not the case Ooh. because... Greg and Tamara talked over the phone. Right. And email works. So yeah. there's internet. So, okay, do a voice call over the internet. And the whole thing about Henry's adoption, Regina right. left Storybrooke and probably had communication with the adoption agency back and forth while she was in Storybrooke. And actually Rumpel did right. because he was the one that arranged the adoption. Correct. So <laughs> there is communication in and out of Storybrooke. They just might not know it, but... Yes. It could have also been something like they didn't want to enable themselves to seek each other out because of concerns about where the relationship was and where things were going at that point. Back at the cabin, when Rumpel came back, we learned some other interesting things here. Now we can see when August is telling the truth and when he isn't. So it's more convenient for us as theorizing what's going on. But the sorcerer trapped the author in the book, and we learn that later on. So the author is trapped in the book. He's trapped behind this door. The sorcerer put him there. Why? It sounds like the author is the good guy, and the sorcerer is the bad guy. It does sound that way. Especially since it seems that the sorcerer has this hat, which has a very malicious meaning, but the apprentice seemed to be a good guy. I know, Jeremy, you're out there. You're saying the sorcerer and the apprentice are one and the same. That is a great theory. Another theory is that maybe the sorcerer and the author are brothers. 
this would tie in nicely with some stuff that happened in Lost. And I know Jacqueline and also in the forum, Slurpees 108 are thinking something similar. And you look at certain things like Slurpees mentioned uh, Cain and Abel from the Old Testament and uh, other sibling rivalry like Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his many brothers. And that's just looking at the biblical accounts of sibling rivalry. In history, we certainly have lots of accounts of sibling rivalry. Yep. And as we know in Once Upon a Time, everybody's related. (laughs) So I really would not be surprised if the sorcerer and the author are related. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't. Or even if they are, like, that wouldn't shock me. Even The Apprentice, maybe he's the son of one of them. Or like a step-sibling. Yeah. Yeah, the brother that was charged with Or a half-brother. So he only gets to be an apprentice and not a full-on powerful person. What did you think of the whole nose-growing story part of it? It was cool to see that finally happen. Because we hadn't seen that happen in Once Upon a Time. But we know that from part of you know the Pinocchio story. When did his nose go back to normal size? Because isn't it as you tell the truth, doesn't it go shrink again? Well, that's the way we know it to be. But here, yeah, well, he did tell the truth. So maybe it went it back to normal size after yeah. that. Or maybe the magic just wore off. It could have. <laughs> because that's part of even Cruella's joke was that the magic wore off and she liked the scruff. I loved how they left Cruella because she was the guard dog. <laughs> Jessica Olson sent in a suggestion here, tying things in with Emma. She said, I'm not the biggest fan of August, but it was kind of fun to have him back. I hope they eventually turn him back into a little boy again, though. Poor Marco. Anyway, when Rumpel brought up his built-in lie detector, it made me think of Emma's superpower. I had always assumed she got it because she was, quote, the savior, unquote, but now I kind of wonder if Emma got the power by traveling through the tree portal with Pinocchio and some of his lie magic, for lack of a better term, rubbed off on Emma. Probably it was just a coincidence, but they seem to be the only two with some sort of power or magic surrounding lying. I think that's a great observation, Jessica. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, Belle does have this ability, and it has finally been said on the show, but the writers have said this for a while, that Belle's superpower sort of is the ability to see good in people. That's kind of the opposite of Emma. Emma's ability is kind of to see the bad in people, to see when people are lying or to tell when they're telling the truth. Yeah, but I mean, it's also how she grew up, too. She grew up on her own, so she didn't really have anyone that was being nice and kind to her. If you look at her past storyline from her growing up. She's that's just the way she is. She's okay. This can't be good. What's wrong with this? Right. When the charmings and Emma were together and Mary Margaret and David were a little bit shocked by Emma saying something about, yeah, I wouldn't blame hook. I'd do something even horrible too. It's not the first time Emma has said something like that. You remember in the episode broken, the season premiere of the second season, Emma threatened to punch Rumpel's face in. Yes. So she's not without her threats and her dark side. I think everyone, though, has a dark side. Oh, yeah. If you look at all the characters, like, yes, this is uncommon for Emma to act that way, but it's not out of the norm for everyone as a whole. Everyone has got something bad happens, and bam, 
they'll have that evil streak. They could be the sweetest person in the world. But, I mean, if you look, Snow has a black spot in her heart because she did something evil. It's just the way everyone is. It's just we finally get to see it. Yeah. And look at what Jacqueline pointed out back in Neverland, that really emotional scene where Emma got Regina to take the heart of that one lost boy out. Yep. So, yeah, she has this dark side. And there is the big question then of what would actually trigger Emma's going dark. And I know Jessica sent in some great feedback on that. But that's why I think we're going to see is Rumpel is going to start manipulating situations and turning Emma dark or making her start to doubt things. At this point, really, they're really setting things up for Emma to discover that Snow and Charming have been lying to her. I think it's only a matter of time until they find out. Yeah. I mean, if her superpower is to tell when someone's lying, then it's got to happen sooner or later. Right. But she feels like it's just going haywire at the point. When they come to break out August, I think a lot of the stuff that happened here with Ursula and returning and all of that was really, really a stretch. Poseidon's return here, I think, was the worst part of the episode, just really forced. And what is really a conflict to me is how Hook is doubting his ability to get a happy ending when he just helped a villain get her happy ending. I don't see him as doubting his ability to get a happy ending because he says he has his happy ending. Right, but he might lose it, yeah. Right, I can understand him might losing it, but he's not doubting that he has one. He has his happy ending now because he says it's Emma. But you have to admit that this scene did bring one of the best things out. The frying pan. (laughs) And the frying pan, if you do not know, is the best weapon ever. And you will see that actually with uh, Rapunzel in the Tangled movie. And now Snow White has used it. Or Mary Margaret, depending on what you want to call her nowadays. But it is, it's the best weapon. And I love that scene. I just love seeing the frying pan come out and hit her in the back of the head. Yeah. Meet the frying pan. Your new best friend. <laughs> Did you notice when Cruella left that scene? Because no. I kept, like, the last two times I watched it, I watched it so intently, trying to even see, like, a little bit of black or a little bit of white. And, I mean, it's not like, okay, she is a very skinny person, a very mm. tiny person. But that jacket is not tiny. So... <laughs> How did she get out of the room and no one noticed? And also very silently ran her car. Right. Because her car's not quiet either. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't let you see anything like that. They just, it's one of those things that it just happened off camera. (laughs) And we're just supposed to assume and not think about that one too much. (laughs) But it was neat to see, again, a great model of family making right their wrongs and the father apologizing and giving Ursula back her singing voice. And then her willful choice to go back with him, even though he was willing to let her be and follow her own path, it's really neat to see that reconciliation. I think that is awesome that they did bring that out in this episode. And when when Ursula got her voice back, didn't you just notice she seemed to glow from that point on? And it's the same song from the movie of The Little Mermaid. And in the movie... 
the shell glows as the magic's happening. So, and then when it, the voice enters you again, you start glowing. So I really like how they brought that in. And it's amazing, the actress who plays Ursula, how up until this episode, we've seen her as villain, villain, villain. And she's looked that. Yes. And now that she's got her happy ending again, which is just her voice, now she no longer actually looks like a villain. Did you notice that happened all really fast? Yeah, it did. For as many years as she's been mad and a villain, she became she overcame being a villain quite fast. Right. Well, she was a villain. Or let me let me put this differently because I am thinking about this thing of Hook being worried about losing his happy ending because he it was once a villain, but he was also once honorable. Ursula was also once honorable, and she wanted her voice back. Now she's got her voice back. I wouldn't necessarily say, at least that we know of, because we haven't seen everything Ursula has done. I take that back. We have seen Ursula work with the other witches to help Rumpel get the dark curse. So, yeah, okay. I was thinking that maybe Ursula wasn't actually truly a villain. She was just kind of bitter about her loss. But no, thinking back to it, she's done some bad things and some villainly, villainry, whatever things. So, yeah, she was a villain, but she's got her happy ending now. Yes. When Ursula then held up her end of the deal and told her plan or told Gold's plan to Hook, there's some really interesting depth here that took me a couple times watching this episode to really understand. See, it sounds like this author is a bringer of happy endings, but he can't give happy endings to the villains because he didn't write the happy endings that happen in this world. Emma brought those happy endings, even though she didn't write it. We still don't know what kind of power the author has, whether he creates, he makes the stories happen, or if he's just recording them, or maybe like he has a power to bless the people, in a sense, who are being heroes. Well, I'm going to talk about this. We talk about it more in the spoilers, so we don't know if this is a spoiler, and I'm not. That's why I'm putting it out there. We already saw the picture in the book of Regina and Robin. That never happened. How do we have that picture? So this is the whole thing. Is is he just writing down what happens? But that never happened, and we have a picture of it. Right. So are the, is it the choices that everyone makes? Like maybe he's like the person all knowing and there's like all these different storyline branches and it's which way you choose is the one that he grabs. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Or think about this. That picture did happen. It happened in Regina's dream. Okay. Yeah. That's part of what makes me think that maybe the author is trying to communicate with Regina through her dreams and through that paper. Maybe. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. This is, like I said, that's not a spoiler. That's not nothing like that. I don't know. We do theorize, theorize it in the spoilers at the end of this episode. <laughs> so the author apparently is the giver of happy endings, at least in the Enchanted Forest. He could be. I mean, I personally don't think he gives anyone anything, but that's just me. 
I think it's more like choices. Like, like I said, that there's a whole bunch of storylines and it's which way you choose to go. Yeah. And if the author can't bring the happy endings to the villains, because Emma is the bringer of happy endings in this world, it makes it seem like Emma is more powerful. And it makes me wonder, could Emma willingly bring the happy endings to the villains? So maybe Rumpelstiltskin's plan is not to corrupt Emma so that the author can give the villains the happy endings. But maybe Mr. Gold's plan is to corrupt Emma so that she will become a villain, so that she wants to give the villains a happy ending, so that she'll sympathize with them. That's interesting. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it like that. <laughs> like, why does he need to corrupt her heart? Okay, yeah, if she's the bringer of happy endings, sure, she needs to be out of the picture in some way, or she, her power needs to be gone. But what does corrupting her do? That's what I've been trying to figure out. I just see her as she's, it's that whole, in my mind, nature versus nurture thing. Yeah. So it's like she wanted to be good. And so she's good and she's got this powerful magic and she chose to go to the good side. And now what happened? He just wants her. Rumple is an evil person. Any way you look at it, you could be in love with him. I don't care. He's still evil. Um, but he, uh, he wants her to be evil, to be on his side. So like, it's just like, okay, let's pump you full of evil yeah, and just make you the evil person that there is. About the happy endings for each of these villains, Brianna sent in a theory here saying, way back when Rumpel first connected with the Queens of Darkness, he mentioned that he knew what each of their happy endings were. It seemed like none of them wanted those happy endings shared. Well, we now know that what Ursula's happiness meant. And we can take a guess at what Maleficence had to do with, though that hasn't been shared with the villains yet. It makes me wonder if all their happy endings are, quote, soft, unquote, and therefore that's why they wouldn't want them shared. That's a great point. And it's not something like, oh, you know, true love or family or the kingdom or something like that, but something small, something, yeah, soft, like Brianna pointed out. Back at the Charming's Loft is when Regina and Emma talked about the dream and Regina's hiring Emma basically to find Robin. I think she will ultimately find Robin, but what is she, you might not be able to comment on this, but what is she going to find? That's my question. Is she going to find Robin like in a horrible circumstance? Is Robin going to have turned to the dark side? Maybe because of something that's happened outside of Storybrooke. I believe that Emma will find Robin well, that's what she does. She does a great job at finding people. Yeah. yeah. She was a bail bond person. She got her money by finding people. Yeah. So she's good at it. She's found everyone that she's gone looking for. She'll find Robin. Logic would say that. But what will he be like? And will it be just as simple as a phone call? Or is there going to be something worse that happens with this? This is once upon a time, so you can just assume everything's going to have something worse. Yeah. Oh, look, it's my long lost brother. Oh, he's evil. I mean, there's, they need to make it that way in order to keep the show going. And 
now we know that the author is trapped in the book. That's what August pointed out. And that the, the illustration of the door is actually the door, which. Did you find this a weird scene? Yeah, a bit weird. Because, okay, he was just tortured by Regina, who he believed to be evil. And now, all of a sudden, he's spilling out all the secrets right into this. Like, to me, that just seems a little, a little odd. But he does trust Emma. And Emma said, it's okay, trust me. And it looks like he's kind of taking that. Or maybe he's also remembering back to when he was a little boy and Regina was being good. Yeah, that could be too. Megan from Boise, Idaho suggested that maybe one of the ways that they have to get the author out of the book is to read him out of the book. Like maybe they all have to read the book or maybe Emma has to read the whole book out loud or something like that. You put in all the pages or I've even thought maybe all they have to do is just put in that page and then that's how they're able to Or something with August because he knows how to find the book and do everything like that. Yeah, yeah. But there's probably going to be more magic to it than that because the illustration of the door has been there with the book. Squid ink. (laughs) Yes, that's it. It all comes down to squid ink. That's what's going to open it. We got in some feedback from this. Uh, Jessica Olson said, I thought it was interesting that the author is in the book. It brings up a lot of questions, though, like how long has he or she been there? How did they get there? Do they want to be there and can they write or alter the book from there did the sorcerer possibly banish them there or send them there on purpose or did the author choose to go there to escape the sorcerer or something like that is the author maleficent's child is the author a villain you know here's one other thing that jessica's voice or message here pointed out he or she have they ever referred to the author by a gender i don't think so I don't remember it. Not, to my recollection, I only remember them ever saying the author. Right. The sorcerer and the author are two different people. They've referred to the author, the sorcerer as a he, but I think they've always referred to the author just as the author, which makes me think it's going to be a woman. I have no idea. If it's a woman, maybe it's the wife of the sorcerer. Could be. And have you noticed, though, um, there is nothing new in the book. Everything is from past fairy tale, from before the curse hit. It's nothing from after the curse. Right. So did he get trapped in the book right around the time of the curse? Because Maybe. remember, okay, this is going way back when, uh-huh. with the fairies, this mother superior or blue fairy, whatever you want to call her nowadays, she says, we have to go make preparations. Maybe. They trapped the author in the book at that time to preserve it. I don't know about that because when they showed the book to Blue Fairy or Mother Superior there in Granny's Diner, she was amazed at the book, which threw all of those theories out that they wrote the book. But then that's when we learned that the sorcerer and the author are two very different people. But I would have thought that she could have said something like, oh, I put the author there. But she didn't. Oh, I wouldn't. I don't see anyone saying that they were the ones that did that. Yeah, that's true. Well, Matthew Paul suggested something on the flip side of things. 
He said, I thought I'd share this little theory I have about the author. Some have assumed that the sorcerer might be evil and trapped the author in the book for his own nefarious purposes. However, what if this isn't the case? What if the author is the sinister and mischievous one? What if the sorcerer imprisoned the author in the book not to abuse his powers for his own gain, but as punishment for his behavior and as a method to keep him under control? Having the power to control everyone's lives through the power of writing would likely give the author a god complex, which could be in itself very dangerous. Freeing the author from his imprisonment could be a huge mistake and result in yet another catastrophic problem our characters will have to deal with. Season five. (laughs) Yes. I like this idea. And this could be, yeah, that thing that pulls us into season five is as season four is uh, now we're almost halfway through the last half of season four. And as it's starting to draw to a close, it looks like there isn't enough time for us to meet the author and really deal with the author because they're giving it so much of a lead in that it'd be horrible if it's just one episode and it's over with the author. So, I like the idea of the author possibly being the villain in the next season and what that could entail. And I like this different aspect of thinking because look at back at what the blue fairy said in the diner. She said, the author and the sorcerer are two very different people. One might be good and one might be evil. Yeah. I don't, I could just be remembering this incorrectly, but I don't remember her saying necessarily that one was good and one was evil. She didn't say anything like that. And we've seen different things that indicate that the sorcerer is good and that the sorcerer is evil. The sorcerer in Rumpelstiltskin didn't get along, presumably. Uh, when Ingrid went to the sorcerer's apprentice, the way that they had their conversations all made it sound like the sorcerer is good. And that that's why he was concerned with helping Ingrid is because he didn't want to help a villain. So maybe the author is the bad guy. I like that thinking. Well, this concludes our conversation of Poor Unfortunate Soul, but you can continue the conversation by commenting on the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 188 or go to the forums at oncepodcast.com slash forums and start your own conversations, participate in many of these other conversations and send us your feedback for future episodes of Once Upon a Time. We'll be back on our normal schedule for upcoming episodes and would love to have your feedback. Thank you very much for the feedback you've already sent. We tried to incorporate as much as we could, especially since we're recording in a completely different place right now and completely different audio quality and equipment and all of that stuff. But we'll be back to normal very soon. And we'd love to connect with you on Twitter. So please follow us on Twitter at Once Podcast and connect with us each individually. I'm Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter at The Ramen Noodle. And I'm Hunter Hathaway on Twitter at Bit of Pixie Dust. And please connect with our other co-host, Jeremy Laughlin, on Twitter at Fleegon, P-H-L-E-G-O-N, and Aaron on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz. And you'll hear from Jacqueline and Hunter in a little bit from uh, their spoilers segment. This podcast would not be possible without our great team of volunteers and your kind donations. Special thanks 
in this episode to Corbin for sorting our feedback, Jack writing our show notes, John Buchanan editing the episodes, Hunter and Jacqueline providing spoilers. You'll hear those in just a moment. Jacqueline and Matthew Paul moderating the forums, Jacob helping with the screenshots, Keb managing our timeline, alias scape moderating the chat room and my fellow co-hosts jeremy aaron hunter and jacqueline hosting this podcast with me and hunter i really appreciate you being part of this too live in person thanks for having me be sure to go to the show notes and subscribe to the podcast please leave some ratings and reviews in itunes or whatever your favorite podcast app is of choice that's at onepodcast.com and until next time be content that you finally chosen the winning side and thanks for listening Once Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our sponsors for this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to be one of them and help keep the podcast running, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash sponsor. Hi, Oncers. I'm Hunter Hathaway. And I'm Jacqueline. And it's spoiler time for Once Podcast. Season 4, Episode 16, Best Laid Plans. Hook tells Emma that her fate is at stake in Gold's plan while Regina leads the villains on a wild goose chase. Henry makes a breakthrough in his search to find the author, but Mary, Margaret, and David need a moment to reconsider the best course of action. In a fairy tale land flashback, Snow and Charming search for a way to ensure their child will grow up to be a hero. When a traveling peddler directs them to visit a kindly old hermit, Snow and Charming are presented with a choice that could secure their child's goodness, but at a price that will haunt them for years to come. We've got guest stars Keegan Connor Tracy as Mother Superior, Ian Bailey's back as August, Abby Ross as Young Emma, Barclay Hope as Adoptive Father, Timothy Weber as Apprentice, Patrick Fischler as Peddler, Michelle Cho Lee as Adoption Agent, and Miriam Dungray as Ursula. It's nice to know that they haven't completely made Ursula vanish. Yeah. I was kind of worried that she wouldn't be around. I'm like, it's so early, too, in this half a season. Why get rid of her already? Right. And I want to point out that we have actually seen Barkley Hope before. He was last seen in episode 405 as Lily's adoptive father. Okay. And this one's written by Kalinda Vasquez and Jane Epsonson and directed by Ron Underwood. And I would keep a very close eye on this peddler. They cast him quite a while ago, and it's going to be a multi-episode arc. And... If you believe any of the theories out there, chances are this is the author. Yes. And then it also said that to the kindly old hermit, I'm thinking that's the apprentice. Mm -hmm. We did get two promos this week. We got one from America and one from Canada. I'm going to talk about the American one because it was the better of the two. It was. It had a lot more in it. Yeah. So it's actually a really cool promo. I think this might be one of my favorites they've done for season four. And it looks like this is going to be a very, very intense episode. In the flashback, we see Snow and Charming stealing Maleficent's baby. Mm -hmm. And Maleficent is very distraught. She's begging with them, pleading with them to have mercy, to not take her child. And it looks like Snow is carrying a very large... Honestly, guys, it looks like a dragon egg. 
Yeah. And she's running away with it. So I'm kind of thinking that Maleficent may have actually laid a dragon egg. Yeah. And it's like wrapped in a blanket. Yeah. Like, it looks like it could be a child. (laughs) You know how, like, when they run with kids and there's, you know, it's a doll. Yeah. Like, that kind of a thing. Like, it's this big, huge thing. And then we do see a flash of The Apprentice, and he's telling, I assume, Snow White and Prince Charming that once the spell is enacted, it cannot be undone. So it sounds like Snow and Charming go to The Apprentice and have him do something to Maleficent's baby. And we get to see the dragon. You forgot to mention that. Oh, the dragon is there, of course. Full dragon glory. With the green eyes and everything. Yes. And then we do see a little bit of Storybrooke in the promo. Snow turns to Emma and says, I'm your mother. And Emma responds very coldly, I don't care. And she's got that pink look around her eyes. Yeah. I'm guessing there's going to be a huge Snow and Emma fallout this episode. Emma will likely learn what Snow and Charming did to Maleficent. Yeah, I think this is the start of her turning evil. I think so, too. So then we have the Canadian promo, which shows just a little bit more. Maleficent ends up putting the whole town to sleep, and she says now it's time to get to work. So their plans are enacted in this one. We learn that if Emma goes dark, she will no longer be the savior. But Charming really wants to protect his daughter. That's pretty much all we learned. (laughs) Yeah, the Canadian promo wasn't that great this week. (laughs) Yeah, it's usually the other way around. But So we did get some photos. I didn't feel that these photos showed a whole lot. No, they were... A lot of them felt like they were the same photo. (laughs) Yes. It's Rumpel, the Queens of Darkness, minus Ursula, but with Regina. And they're in the woods. And there's a lot of shots of them just standing or looking at each other or just kind of looking off into the distance. Yeah, they're like overlooking. It's kind like kind of like they're on a hill, like looking at everything that's happened. Yeah. And I think this is right after she and Maleficent enacts the sleeping curse. Mm, that's a good bet. Maleficent is in her <laughs> 1940s suit. Yes. But she does have <laughs> her scepter walking stick. Yes, and I think the the Dragon Ball egg up top, I think it got bigger. Yes. It looks like it's quite huge in that picture. And does it remind you when they, sh- they show them all walking with Maleficent leading the way that it's like her with all the little ducks in a row? <laughs> well, it does now. Oh, because that's the first thing I saw. I'm like, oh, look, it's like, follow the leader. <laughs> with Regina in the back, of course, so she can run off, I guess. <laughs> so she can scamper away. And then there were a few more, not of the Queens of Darkness and Rumple. And there were some of August. It looks like he's living in the sorcerer's house because that's that set. Okay. And it looks as though Emma and Snow are there with him. So I'm guessing they have put August up in the sorcerer's house for a while. Yes. And August and Emma are overlooking the page in the book. Yes. So like probably trying to figure out how to get the author out. And then finally, we did get some stills of the flashback for this episode of Snow and Charming in the Woods. Mm-hmm. dressed in their Enchanted Forest clothing. And I got to say, I think this might be one of my very favorite snow outfits. The fur one. Okay, I was going to say, there's two of them. She's got, like, her battle outfit. Yeah. And then she's got her, like, traveling cloak. Yeah, the ones that show snow in that white outfit, those are actually, for some reason, I think, from episode 413, Unforgiven, because those pictures and the ones of Adam Horowitz on set talking to Josh Mm -hmm. Dallas. 
That was the episode he directed. So for some reason, those got mixed into 416. Okay, because I was confused. <laughs> but Snow's new outfit looks really great, and Jenny Goodwin looks looks amazing in it. So. Yes, she does. Nice costuming there. Yes. So that's all we have for this next episode. But we do have the season four finale episode title. <laughs> so 422 is Surprise, Surprise, Operation Mongoose Part 2. And it's written by Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz. I am just so shocked. I am shocked. I mean, who would have guessed? I mean, <laughs> 421 is Operation Mongoose Part 1. So who would have ever guessed this? Right. <laughs> But we can look forward to that. That will be a two-hour episode. So 421 and 422 will be playing back-to-back. Yes. We had an interview with Lana Perella about the author. You will get a glimpse of him before knowing his identity as the author. It's a fun reveal. He's very unexpected. You can't guess who the author is. He's very unassuming. And you'll see him and meet him first without knowing that he's the author. Yeah, I definitely think the author is the peddler. And... If you, you know, read that press release or hear the press release that Hunter just read, it sounds as though his role is not necessarily writing happy or bad endings. It's that he appears to the characters and gives them choices, and then they ultimately have to decide whether or not they are going to sort of go down that rabbit hole. That's why I think that there was the picture of Regina and Robin, because he had given her the choice, and if she went the one way, she would have been with him earlier, and that kind of stuff. Right. And one of the big thoughts right now is that the peddler is the author and that he is going to be responsible for a lot of those open questions that we still have after so many seasons. You know, little things that we never thought we'd ever go back to, but that they might answer by saying it was the author all along. So who gave Granny Red's cloak or who gave Peter Pan the picture of Henry? That mm-hmm. it's going to turn out that it's been the author all along. Exciting. And now you had some fun, exciting stuff. Yeah, we want to start teasing some of the spoilers that we've been sitting on for a while, just because it was so early in the show. But we want to start talking about episodes 417, 18, and 19. And that's Heart of Gold, Sympathy for the DeVille, and Lily. Yeah. So we know that 417, Heart of Gold, is a Robin Hood-centric And that we'll be seeing Robin's time in New York. And we also know from this past episode that Regina has asked Emma to find Robin. Yes. Well, they do succeed. And we know that Robin, Marion, and Roland are coming back to Storybrooke after Emma and Regina go get them. Okay. The big spoiler here is that Marion is most likely not really Marion. So we also know that Zelina is going to be making an appearance in 417 in a flashback. But what we have been sitting on for a while is that Rebecca Mater was on set when Robin, Marion, and Roland came back into Storybrooke wearing the exact same coat that Marion was wearing. So it is very, very likely that Marion is really Zelina in disguise. That's so strange. It's a strange plot. I'm not quite sure why Zelina is doing this, unless it's just to kind of mess with Regina. I don't know. Because what happened to the original Marion? I'm guessing that Marion really is dead. Maybe Zelina killed her. Yeah, that's what I think they might do. So look for that around episode 17. 18 is more of a Cruella episode, and then a lot of that resolution will come back in at 19. And of course, coming with them, 
back to Storybrooke is Lily. Yes. Agnes. Well, we shouldn't call her Lily because it hasn't been fully confirmed, but we all know it's Lily. Um, <laughs> Agnes, Agnes Bruckner, who will be playing adult Lily. Very cool. Yep. So exciting. I wonder if Cruella de Vil is going to have such a fast time getting her happy ending like Ursula did. I'm interested to see Cruella's story. I'm kind of really excited for that episode. Yeah, because like in the movies and everything that we know from her, she's just an evil woman. All about her powers and Mm -hmm. what's her happy ending? Well, my theory is that her happy ending has a lot to do with money. I think we're going to learn that Cruella came from an impoverished background and that she's been fighting this whole time to keep her wealth and status. Ah, okay. That's my big theory. Well, we've got a lot of fun things coming up, so I can't wait for this week's episode on Sunday. It's got a lot. So that's all we have for you this week. I'm Hunter. You can follow me on Twitter at Bit of Pixie Dust. I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at Punk underscore Bunny underscore 87. Until next time, Oncers. Oh, 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 oh,